To ship, of course. Welcome to the Ship Show, the podcast where we discuss build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Silver Build and John Twitter, and at SilverBuildEngineer.com. And who's on the line tonight? This is Sasha from Minneapolis. Uh, this is Yusuf at Build Scientist on Twitter. Uh, Sasha, I hear you went on a trip over the weekend. I did. I visited the hinterlands of Southern Illinois. And what did you do while you were there? Well, I went to see a tattoo artist. Her name is Michelle Wartman. Oh. And uh, she specializes in doing some really fantastic work with beautiful tattoo artistry. And I'm embarked on a set of full sleeves, of which I have now uh, a partial on my left arm. It's very wow. exciting. How are you feeling? Yeah, how are you feeling in here that can hurt? It hurts like the dickens. It's kind of <laughs> like having a giant open wound all up and down my arm. Ouch, ouch. Well, so how long does that usually take to heal? You know, I'm not sure. I've had a couple on my back, but it's different when it's on an arm. So the back pretty much just kind of did its thing without me, and I just kind of kept it medicated, but mm-hmm. the arm, it actually hurts a lot more. And well, the, um, the arm you have to you use for things. Yes. <laughs> We'd originally talked about doing both arms at once, like uh, partial designs on both, and I'm glad now that we didn't because traveling home like that would have been a real bummer. Yeah. yeah. So it's definitely a, a burning pile of pain right now. <laughs> well, I hope you feel better soon. For, so for episode 21, we're going to be discussing when is enough enough uh, and some of the organizational red and yellow flags that might be an indicator that it's time to show yourself the door. More on that in a moment, but news and views first as always. So first up, uh, Yusuf, you pointed us to an interesting article from New Zealand. The government there has announced a major change to their patent rules, which were actually, their patent act was as old as ours, 1953, but they made some rules that uh, you can no longer patent software. Yeah, definitely uh, an exciting, I guess, and interesting uh, turn of events. You know, no software patents. So I guess for uh, New Zealand software developers, they don't have to worry about patents. I mean, I, I do know that they have their use, but it, I don't know, I'm kind of conflicted, especially when recently uh, all the various uh, smartphone vendors and, and such getting into fights about, oh, you copied me and uh, I copied you or whatever. So, yeah, it's a definitely an interesting turn of events, yeah. Wow, so, they're going to all have to move here then, won't they? Well, so that's actually, that's interesting. I was kind of skimming the article, and of course we'll link to it in the show notes, whether that means that they can ignore other patents from other countries or if they're just like null and void in New Zealand or whatever. But Yusuf, you were talking about the uh, phone vendors. It's, it's almost as if that circus may have prompted some of these conversations because a lot of the claims and patents for software really are just very absurd. You know, we see that from time to time. You see this on Twitter where somebody links to a patent and they're patenting something that you could ask anyone and we would all get it. We'd all be able to figure out if you had a particular problem. So it's interesting to see some very clear reform on this that that, uh, the other major countries don't, they seem to be kind of stalled on. Well, but I mean, really, what difference does that make? Can't they just still uh, patent it here or wherever? And, And I mean... New Zealand isn't a very big country, is it? How much impact is it going to have locally if you can't put patent your software, if you can still do it every place else? Yeah, so, I mean, that's a good point. I think, uh, I mean, I, I, that's a good question, too. I hope I'm not offending anybody from New Zealand with that, but I am <laughs> genuinely curious. Well, I think it may be actually more symbolic in that there's, there's a, a, a country that obviously has a software market, and we'll see what happens there. Uh, maybe it'll be you know, something that uh, we can export it. Once we see how it works there, we can 
see that it, the sky won't fall and and it it will actually work out. So I agree. I mean, who knows the ma- the major impact? But it's nice to see at least some movement on that front. Um, next up, we have a notice that I, I like the euphemism. Dell is refining plans for its OpenStack-powered public cloud. Uh, Sasha, you had uh, you had said, well, obviously, and I, I was reading the, the article, but uh, you were saying it was due to an acquisition. Well, that's what I hear anyway. I mean, that was the, the logic behind it is that right after they bought Instratius a few weeks ago, they announced that they were retiring their own attempt to build a, I guess it's a cloud offering like AWS or whatever, and so they've decided that they're going to go down the the road of the the API offering that Instradius offers instead. So that's kind of interesting. So Instradius offers uh, an API to multiple public clouds? Is that the... I think that's the basic thing, is that they, they offer you a tool that will allow you to manage your stuff in, in several different providers, and help, it helps homogenize the interface, basically, for you, so that you aren't having to cope with 10 different providers if that's what you really want. Interesting, yeah. I'm just looking through the the details, and again, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. But uh, it's just an interesting change of position, especially like if you had. I mean, can can you imagine Amazon saying, "Oh, this AWS thing's not working out. We're just going to shut it down." Well, right. Um, so I read actually, I think a GigaOM article that actually had quite a bit of commentary on different ways that that could have fallen out and why it was interesting and stuff. Yeah. Well, we'll link to that. We'll get we'll get the link and link to it in the show notes as well. Next up, we have news from a project for the British government. Apparently, there was uh, they have a project called Universal Credit, um, which has been dubbed the world's biggest ever agile development software project. It's uh, related to how uh, the British government t- deploys their uh, welfare checks. They have a system, uh, much like many states here uh, in the United States have, where you can put your money on like a credit card and then use it at various stores and for things that are approved and stuff like that. Um, what I thought was interesting about the review of this was that it's the biggest ever agile development software project, and it's it's at risk right now. Uh, and if you read the article, it talks a lot about for being an agile project, you kind of look at it and go like, huh, why why did they do that? So, for example, one of the things they were talking about was they were going to release release something on a Friday afternoon before a bank holiday, which is like, why would you do that? So it's interesting. And then they were talking about to mitigate it, they were actually looking at making the uh, one part of the system waterfall, move it to waterfall development, and then keep Agile for the other, which seems like a bad idea, but, uh, you know, who knows. Uh, did you guys see this article? I did. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's weird. It's, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, we talk about this a lot, too, with DevOps, right, where a lot of places call it DevOps, and it's not any different than what they would normally do. It sounds like this sort of had that same problem, where it's like, well, if we call it Agile, it'll all work out. Uh, <laughs> and, oops, Maybe they should have gotten in touch with somebody from the uh, Obama campaign. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny, too, right, because there's a lot of, I mean, welfare benefit distribution. There's That's a whole political issue as well. Right. Uh, so it, it's not surprising to me that, I mean, I was actually just reading an article about this uh, on Obamacare, and they were talking about certain states are trying to hinder the implementation of it. So I could see, no matter whether it's Waterfall or Agile, if you have bad actors that are trying to make the project fail because they don't want it. It doesn't matter if you use Agile, but it was just interesting to see that they were going from Agile and they were like, well, let's shift part of the project back to Waterfall, which actually begs the question, is there some kind of limit to the complexity of Agile projects in in actual practice? And I'm sure we'll get some feedback and people will say no, but here's here's some counter data to that or counter example to, to that where 
they had a big project and they're they're shifting parts of it. Last up tonight, Seth pointed this out to us, and I it's it's kind of hilarious. Oracle is changing the release numbering for for Java. Uh, I think the subject on his email was something like "Let's rage together" or something, or "Oh the rage." Um, I, I did want to actually read this. This is from the announcement. Limited update releases will be numbered in multiples of 20. We intend for critical patch updates to continue to use odd numbers. The numbers will be calculated by adding multiples of 5 to the prior limited update and when needed adding one to keep the resulting number odd. This is best illustrated with an example. The next limited update for JDK 7 will be numbered 7U40 and the next three CPUs after that will be numbered 745, 751, 7U51, 7U55. You know what you really should do is get like the... the Get the Sims people to write their examples for them. <laughs> well, <laughs> I remember our bloopers list that they fixed or their their bug fix list. Right. Well, that so more interesting. the other funny thing is, uh, I guess there's a guy named Phil Race who works for Oracle, and he's been working on Java for a long time. He worked at Sun, and he he posted something on the Open JDK mailing list that I also found hilarious. Let me see if I can find. I can't believe anybody from Sun still works there. I mean, it just appalls me. Yeah, a lot of people left, but this is, I mean, haven't they heard of semantic versioning? I mean, I'm sure somebody's read something about it. Well, so I can understand that everyone, here's, the, we had a versioning episode, and we talked a little bit about that. Everybody says semantic versioning, semantic versioning, yeah, 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 we got it. Even the people, you know, I, I was talking with somebody uh, about how Node is a big proponent of semantic versioning, and yet a bunch of the Node community still gets it wrong. So just because you have three digits X, Y, Z, and they mean things like, yeah, we got it. Semantic versioning, got it. You generally find this in enterprise version number requirements because they are trying to communicate things. I really think, I mean, I, I think the change, is, the change makes sense, but the fact that they're doing it now is just kind of absurd. I think this is actually a poster child for you need to think about versioning and if at all possible, you should design that from the beginning and actually talk to someone who's had experience in their career doing that and seeing the requirements. Because your semantic versioning doesn't work for something like the Java platform from the standpoint of you've got so many components that rely on it and that kind of... So I understand why they're making the change, but it's still just kind of like, guys, didn't, you, didn't anybody think of this beforehand? And of course... I know when this comes up, when we talk about it, people always rail against the JDK because it's like, really, guys? You know, with the security <laughs> stuff. No. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm still trying to find that thing where the explanation was funny. I mean, this isn't the first time they've done something like this, right? So, you know, Java, I think it was when they rolled out Java 1.5, I think I think they decided to call it Java 5, and people were like, well, wait a minute. Right. Five or is it Java five? And well, and that was that was the marketing, the whole connection between marketing and version numbers. I found it. So Phil Race, who has as an example, he says seven U fifteen was a planned security release. Seven U seventeen was unplanned, using a reserve number. I think seven U nineteen was reserved just in case, but not needed. Seven U twenty one was a planned security release, and so forth. It's like if it's a security release and the Phase of the moon is full, and full so conversation is making. It'll be interesting hurt. to see the impact. <laughs> well, it'll be interesting to see uh, what the impact, what the impact is uh, on like chef cookbooks and stuff to this. If you know they're going to have to change, because that was the other thing they were talking about, where version numbers. There's a lot of code that parses version, like Java code that parses version numbers, and apparently they ran into this when they changed the name from Sun to Oracle after, like in the JDK, after Oracle purchased Sun. So anyway, we can all rage together about that. 
So, uh, next up, when is enough enough on the ship show? Welcome back to the ship show. Tonight, our topic, when is enough enough? As DevOps release and infrastructure engineers, how do you figure out when an environment or a role just isn't right for you? We're going to talk uh, a bit about what to do when those nagging yellow flags start to turn into red flags, how to parse whether or not the issues you're running into are fixable, and possibly how to do that. And yes, maybe we'll even swap some uh, some fun stories. This topic came up when we got an email from a listener who uh, was, was having a trouble in their environment and... Uh, wanted some advice on trying to parse through these issues and trying to figure out whether or not the role is right for him. So, EJ, you and I were talking about this briefly before. Uh, what do you think? I don't know. It's it's tough. For me, I always look to the future a bit. And if I'm there long enough, I get a feeling for whether or not I could get to where I want to be professionally and then make decisions based on that. If you're still finding fun and it's just a little bit frustrating, but you're still learning, then it's probably not the right time. But for example... At another company, a decision was made around me to use a particular CM tool. Um, no training was provided, and it's not a very popular one, so I opted to pull the ripcord and punch out. So what What about the... Because you said it was just the tool, right? The choice of the tool and no training. What was it about that that sort of made you go, oh, this is kind of a bigger problem? It just spoke volumes about uh, where management thought release engineering operations should be, Right. They were persuaded by a much larger part of the organization to invest very heavily in a tool that was not didn't play well with the actual build and, and dev infrastructure that we had, which was Maven, Nexus, Jenkins, this kind of thing, which is pretty commonplace. Um, and then upon further investigation, we saw that, that the people that actually made these decisions were basing around a very tip-of-the-iceberg type view of the world. Right? They had no idea what was actually going on within dev. Um, so when you start to see this unfold for me those were definitely very heavily waving red flags that says get out but sure yeah. enough right to, to date i've been gone for eight months and there has been no further movement by the team that replaced me at this particular company on this particular tooling um, and they're still using sort of cobbled together uh, jenkins jobs to do the same thing so they made this massive multi-million dollar investment and to the best of my knowledge, it's not being used within this particular company. So, so really, it wasn't so much the tool, but yeah, I mean, you kind of spoke to this. It's that management didn't have uh, like a view of of really what release engineering, like what they should be doing in the organization and the way they can best support the engineers. It was kind of like, hey, so and so had lunch with so and so, and we have a million dollar contract to buy this tool, and so yeah. everybody get on board. Okay, so that that was I never worked like. any place like that. Yeah. <laughs> so let me let me be clear without naming names and pointing fingers but the the tool is definitely for rolling out things like windows patches very well mm. but for bootstrapping a virgin environment with you know your particular container of choice your web app and some configuration not so much mm. okay so, you know that's that's actually funny that you mentioned that cuz i've had the exact opposite experience where there was a tool that had a great amount of inertia in the company and everyone used and even though it wasn't the best tool, it was one that everyone was familiar with and should have been continued to be used. And I was on a team where somebody decided to go in and basically they were like, oh, that tool's stupid. I'm going to write my own. The problem was that tool was used across the organization in both ops and dev teams. And even though it had limitations, it was actively developed and it was the right tool to use. 
And at that point, I basically got fed up and I was like, you're trying to reinvent the wheel. And there wasn't a good, there wasn't a good overriding reason or any data that was, you know, other than the, the particular person in charge of this project was like, I don't like it. So I'm going to rewrite it all in my own custom system that won't actually plug into this one, which is going to be terrifying when we release the product because everything had to go through this tool. And so at that point, I was like, look, if you're going to tell me to, to do this bad thing, I'm just going to leave. And I did. And about three weeks later, they actually rolled back to the state where we were using the old, you know, the company-wide tool. So I've actually seen it from the exact opposite side. Well, so so let me ask this, Seth, because that that kind of brings up another interesting point. A lot of times when you when you join a new team, there's this two or three week or maybe month period of the you know the honeymoon period where everybody you you met all these people during the interview process and you talked with them and and then the first couple of weeks you're trying to get adjusted and everything so everybody's kind of you know tiptoeing around a little bit trying to figure out what you can and can't talk about and that kind of stuff uh, and it sounds like in this environment and, and I'd be curious like a, a little bit more uh, detail on like so in that environment it, the example you were giving it sounds like there's someone on the team that was like hey I'm gonna go do this thing and that's it like there was no sort of team discussion about like what's good what's bad I mean is that really the red flag that, that came well, up that was, that- yeah well the problem was this was this was a lead and so everyone on this particular he was the lead of a group and mm-hmm. it was unfortunate because it was a lead programmer mm-hmm. and it was a lead programmer who was very willful but in the, in one of those uh, kind of like stereotypical lead programmers who aren't great managers mm-hmm. and so he was over the release engineering just there was only one or two people at any given time and so he was just like you need to go do this and there was no ability to push back granted it it would have gotten pushed back eventually because other sections of the company like our ops team would have seen this and been like no 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 you can't right. you're not allowed to do that it just at the time i was basically being told that my opinion not only did not matter, but was stupid. And it not only caused myself to leave, but others to be like, no, that's, we, we can't deal with, it was a manager being obtuse and not, not right. taking the input of the team and the parts of the team that were actually doing that part of the job. So let me let me ask you this, because that, that's a really interesting example in terms of, so you had this one event. Do you think, I mean, we've all been in environments where it's like, okay, the thing you want to do is a horrible idea. And you kind of, they're like, it doesn't matter, we're going to do it anyway. What do you think about this particular instance made that kind of yellow flag, like, hmm, I'm not sure about this, turn into like, okay, this is well, crazy. That was, it was, I would say it's a yellow flag, or, mm-hmm. you, know, it, you know, it was an indicator of trouble. The problem is that exact type of thing had happened many times before. Oh, okay. Uh, that's similar. It was, that was kind of just the, the last one. There were events leading up to this where it was like, we know this is a bad idea, but go do this anyway. So it's sort of the establishment of a pattern. Right. And, and once I saw the pattern clearly, and I realized that it was a large enough organization that I couldn't change it, I mean, I, I put forth a lot of effort trying to do so, I knew that my job was done to the point where, you know, when you leave and a lot of people, when they like you, they'll, you know, make a counter offer or try and talk to you about it, or they'll do right. an interview. They didn't really bother because they knew there was no there was no bringing me back. I'd already kind of like right. I had been a bit I had been a bit willful in my statements, <laughs> and I and I was willing to stand by it. And other people were in agreement with me. They just weren't in, in the positions of power to keep me with the company. Nor did I want to stay in the position I was at. I would have yeah, that, moved elsewhere in the company. That's a hard position to be in too, because you can kind of it, it's this weird place of being sort of checked out, but not even kind of knowing. I've certainly been in that environment where it's like, I'm doing my day-to-day work, but I'm not doing any forward thinking anymore because I've been told 
that well, like you don't get, you turn get, your brain off. So it's like I'm sitting there just kind of pounding on my keyboard day to day, and then it's easy to get into this mode of like I'm just going to say things that are we like to call them CLMs, career limiting moves. And and it you're right. That's that's a bad. It's just a bad situation to be in. When you get slapped on the wrist enough times for trying to do the right thing, you're going to stop doing the right thing and just do the thing that the employer wants you to do. And at right. that point, it becomes unexciting. Well, well, I think that's, it's kind of funny. The, the more and more uh, we talk about this, it sounds like there's probably room for an episode on like interview red flags. And I know we've kind of talked about interviewing before, but from the doing the interview side, like what you can look at to sort of ferret these out a little earlier. But I think we've all had that. That's really hard to do a lot of the time because everybody's on their best behavior in the interview and everybody's saying everything that's interesting. But there are a lot of cases where it's difficult because really the idea of the functional role is we want someone to uh, come in and do a thing, but we don't really want them using their brain. We just want them doing the thing the way it's always been done. And and that can be very, uh, you know, kind of puts a box around the role so that that you can't, and to EJ's point, you can't grow. Um, Sasha, do you have do you have any experience where you had uh, that yellow flag burst into fire and turn into a red flag? Well, I haven't had any. Generally, it's been at established places. Well, and that's why I left my last job last year was because I realized that there was no interest. I, I worked for a really big, big company. And there was just no interest in the same things that I wanted to do, which was the automation and the the other things that I had become interested in. There was no interest in that. The billable hour was king and automation just got in the way of billing more hours. And it was really clear to me that we were never going to consolidate in a way that we could make a beautiful product that made it easier for our customers to get work done. And I just felt really kind of like a cog, you know, and I had enough insight into some of the corporate politics that were going on that it was very, I don't know, stereotypical is the right term. It was almost a caricature of what you think of when you think of like corporate politics and things. So it was, it was interesting. And I finally was just like, that coupled with the idea that they didn't really want to send any, send people to training or conferences and didn't seem to really want to do anything with their senior engineers gave me, I thought, a pretty clear message that I needed to go before I was bored and not having a good time. So, And well, I have friends who are still there who are coasting because the pay was was beautiful, right? right. I mean, it <laughs> the pay was very good. Well, it's friends always- who are coasting. So, I mean, if you want to do that, that's cool, but I don't like to be bored. Well, it's, it's always interesting, too. I mean, you talk about uh, the pay was really good or maybe the benefits are really good or maybe the situation is such where you're like, I can't I can't just up and leave my job. Like, I got a, I've got a family, I got a mortgage, whatever it is. Like, there are other things I have to factor into that equation. It's almost like those are the fire extinguishers for those things that are, you know, catching on fire. Like, someone comes out and, you know, puts them out. But I, I, I think that's one of those things where the more that person with the fire extinguisher has to put out that fire in terms of what the back of your mind, like, oh, this is not great, the more often that happens, the more it's kind of a sign of like, this may not be kind of a good fit. You you brought up something really interesting. You said it became clear that the goals of the company weren't aligned with the, the way they thought of DevOps or automation or whatever it is wasn't aligned with what I thought. Oh, with what I had come to believe. Right. So my enlightenment certainly had nothing to do with whatever was going on there, which was big companies, they sell stuff, right? They sell professional services or whatever, and then you could do them. But generally, salespeople don't have a very good understanding of what they're selling 
And uh, you know, it's, I, I was talking with a friend that worked with it previously, and he was talking about a couple of interviews he'd done. And, and what was interesting is he was talking about the fact that he was very surprised because he was interviewed at this place, and, and we were talking earlier about the interview process. And they try to make, especially in hot markets, the recruiter and everybody tries to make it like this is the you know you're going to be able to do whatever you want, whatever. And this company was actually very honest. They were like, you know what? We know this is a mess. We're trying to get the company in a position to be bought in 12 to 18 months by a bigger company. We don't want you cleaning any of it up. We want you to be the person that's just not, we don't want any automation. We just want you to type in. And that's what we want because we actually don't want to have to deal with the QA and the change in the organization because we're just getting things up in a, in a position to sell to someone else. In some sense, a lot of people would say, oh, that would suck. But the flip side is, I think they respect their honesty, at least. They respect their honesty, yeah. So at least you can make an uninformed decision. I mean, you hear lots of stories where somebody is told, oh, you know, you're, you're going to build the team and you're going to come in and be able to do all this stuff. And you get there and it's like that was kind of fantasy land. Um, I, I, have, I have also had one of those experiences. Yeah? Yep. It was about eight months of, of me being really angry. Yeah. Because I was like, what? Whoa. You well, hired me for what? <laughs> yeah. Well, so yeah, it's funny. Uh, that's actually one of the experiences I, I've had. And, and the couple of signs that I realized is that I, I was told that the thing about, you know, we, we know things are, are, are problematic. We know things are a mess. And we want to hire someone to come fix them. So we're really excited. And I was like, okay, cool. That's great. And what I realized is after, I, I think there's always a period of time where you have to go in and you have to kind of, I don't want to say play politics, but you have to introduce yourself to the organization. You have to find out who's responsible for what. And so I, I really worked really hard on that. And then at some point it was like, Sasha, I was kind of thinking this when you were talking. It's like people didn't get the memo that I, I was told I was hired to fix this thing because they keep coming to me and they're like, don't do that. Don't fix it. it it's working fine. And you're like, well, it, it's broken in these ways. And let me show you all the ways that's broken because I have a different perspective. So this team may not know it's broken for that team or whatever. That was sort of an eye-opener for me when i gone through that experience where it's like not only are the teams not talking to each other to kind of be on the same page, they're like giving me in that role connecting the teams different information, mm -hmm. which is hard when you have like conflicting information. At which point your company or your employer is telling you to be a bad release engineer, that's usually where I... I start to, either I start to check out, as, as I think it was the term Paul used, yeah. where it's just like, you know, okay, well, from this point forward, I'm looking. There's, it's not that I dislike anyone in the office or that the work is necessarily bad, but you're, um, I had a point at, at a company where I'd, I'd been reading, uh, I had just read The Build Master, which is oh. a, a great book, um, and at the time, I think the only thing that was called, you know, even titled or referred to release engineers is Build Masters, and I'd read that, and I was reading all these things, and I'm like, oh my God, we're doing this all wrong. And it was once I had kind of educated myself with this as like one of the pillars, I started to want to change things and then to be a better release engineer myself. And the harder I tried to be a better release engineer, the more resistance I met. Because I went from this being a dream job to me seeing the kind of the ugly underbelly. And then once I wanted to change it, it was, I was stifled. Um, and that was, that was really unfortunate. You know, to be fair, I think, and I think we can all, you know, software is, is, software is like sausage, right? I mean, 
when you see the sausage get made or the software get gets made, there's always stuff going to be like, oh god, I can't believe we ever we we did that. I can't believe we shipped that. I can't believe we ran our production systems that way. There's always going to be a little bit of that. But you know, when you when you were telling that story stuff, I was thinking about maybe we need to come up with like a bingo card or point system sort of thing where it's like when you hear these phrases, that's a negative point. And if you get a certain number of points, like that's – and so one of the things – and I had this experience too where I, I got this conflicting message of this has to be correct and it has to be correct in these ways. So I'd say, okay, well, we're going to have to do this to do that. And then I hear the phrase, well, that, that's for later. Just ship this release. And right. when you keep hearing the just phrase – Just fix it by hand. Yeah, just fix it by hand. Just ship this release. Just do it this time. And you keep hearing that, that's actually indicative of we're not planning to fix any of these things because we're not including that in the, this release is going to take 20% longer because we're going to do automation and, and have a plan for building an automation sort of thing. And I think that doesn't mean that we all just halt a release and don't do it, but there's not even a, okay, let's factor that in a little bit. We want this to be absolutely correct, and we want it to be, you know, not only to be absolutely correct, but we want you to do it very quickly, but at the same time, we don't actually want you to automate it, so if you then do make a mistake... Well, yeah, that... We're going to blame it, you know, we're going to, we're going to, why the hell did you do it? Well, if you'd given me the time to automate this and test this properly, then we wouldn't have had this problem, or this particular merge system would not have been an issue. I mean, that's, I found that a lot where it's, oh, well, we don't have enough time to let you do it correctly, but it still better be perfect. You guys are touching on something that's going on right now actively for me where we're working on sort of something new and something can't really talk about, but they keep saying it doesn't matter, you know, just for this one demo, you just do it by hand. And it's like, yeah, it's like all these, I'm having to like stifle all these flags because then I go back and I sit down and I write a cookbook and wherever I was being sucker punched, I resolve it with some automation, but it's really tough right now because you, you guys are talking about <laughs> something that usually rings some big alarm bells, that whole, we don't have time to do it right once, so we'll just do it twice. You know, I cannot, that just like, mm. Well, there are always trade-offs. There's always, and I here's the thing, like, and this is the thing where I I think it's important to not, because I remember I was in an environment and we were releasing a hot fix, and it was like a really big multi-million-dollar hot fix that I was like really important, and it was sort of important that it was going to be right that the patch be correct. But what was interesting is that I I realized I heard just ship it, it's fine, just ship it a bunch of times during that hot fix. But what I realized is the organization, what they had done is they had shifted a lot of the costs to QA. And so my point is, is that it wasn't quite as bad as the red flag would have maybe entailed, but still they were paying that cost. It was like, oh, QA will just spend twice or three times the amount of time that... Please, when does that ever happen? (laughs) Right. But I mean, what was interesting then, and, and this became the red flag is... When I was like, you know, if we actually did some automation on our side and we weren't doing it manually and we put some effort into that, we could reduce the QA time by a half or a third or whatever. And that was where I got the looks on the face like, well, why would... And in some sense, you're like saying, I want to take budget away from QA. And it's like, no, no, actually, I want them to be able to do more awesome things. But And that's where if that conversation, it's like... I don't know. Yeah, so it's interesting um, all of you are kind of mentioning some of this stuff. And what I kind of wanted to add was getting back to the original question of uh, when is enough enough. And I think if I remember back to a job that I had uh, several several years ago where there was a particular situation where I was working with a bunch of remote developers. And we had some fairly big name 
customers and these remote developers were, were not here in, in the United States. And long story short, basically ended up leaving because the customer focus kept sliding. And I think to whoever, uh, one of our listeners that asked this question, when is enough enough? It depends. I mean, if you're not working, you may, be have, you may have internal customers, you may have you may not have external customers, whatever, but I think if that customer focus is not there or people are cutting corners or management team is, is implicitly asking you to cut corners, whether that means, you know, they don't want you to automate anything or just do do things manually, I think that's definitely an area of concern and, and probably a good idea to begin giving it some thought as to why that's, that stuff is happening. And I think the total inverse is also true, too, where I worked at a place where each customer was allowed to alter the schema, and that includes changing the data types on some of the columns. And it was almost, it was nigh impossible to provide any sort of upgrades to newer systems. And people just ended up having to install from scratch and port their data over. And when you're talking about medical companies, sometimes those records, it's just, it's too many to try and port over. So, yeah, I think having a good balance of customer focus or lack thereof is also sort of a, a massive warning sign. This is one of the things, and, and this is what we're talking about, is like, I've been in a lot of environments, and, and uh, Sasha, I think you and I were talking about this at one point. We were talking about the DevOps emphasis on culture and about how there are certainly environments that I've stayed in probably longer than it was healthy for me. And that's a very hard line to find and a very fine line between I'm not giving this organization enough of a chance to see that I am trustworthy enough to be allowed to be awesome enough to change everything and that I I won't derail some huge deal that I understand the company may need that to make payroll or whatever it is versus I'm putting up with this crap and it's never going to change and I stayed six months longer than I should have stayed. That's a really hard line to find, but but to the firing your clients talk, it's a ripcord to pull for sure, but you don't pull the ripcord all the time. That's that's the hard part. The one thing I, I wanted to go back to actually, Yusuf, what you were saying about customer stuff, I think one of the things for me that's a red flag, I don't know if any of, I, I had a professor in college and we had a course on software ethics and software development ethics. And he made us read the, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but the IEEE roles and responsibilities for software engineers. And it's basically this Hippocratic oath for software developers. And it talks about, I will do this, I will not do that. Yeah. And and I actually was at, in an environment once where I was basically breaking one of those rules. And it had to do with the organization was actively telling someone this is what's in the package and then having me sign off in in, in a professional capacity i mean we don't get professional engineering certificates as software engineers mostly but they wanted me to sign off and assert that this thing that was patently false was true and at that point i i did i refused to do it and they just said okay next release engineering line you're going to sign off on it and and that person did and uh, of course things went off the rails in that particular environment. But the point being that I think that there are certain things, especially as DevOps engineers or release engineers, where you're talking about customer focus, where if a lawsuit ends up happening, because maybe you're in the banking industry or maybe you're in financial services or maybe you're in health records and you get called into court, that's actually your butt on the line. Now, that doesn't mean I was a whistleblower and I said, oh, da, 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 and and who knows, maybe we could talk about whether or not what that would look like and whether or not that was a good idea. But... Certainly, I think there are there are some professional standards that 
we all should think about what those are. So when those lines get crossed or nudged up against, we know that's a red flag. Yeah, cert- I mean, certainly if you're going to be in a litigious situation like that, I, you know, you'd probably want to get out of that. Yeah. I, I mean, this is a very interesting discussion. I, I think could, we could definitely go on for a while about what all the red flags we've seen. I, I guess the one thing I would leave with, and I'd be curious, you know, especially if you guys have any other real big red flags. I mean, I think... From a cultural kind of overall perspective, I think one of the biggest things that clues me in that, A, it's it's probably time to start looking is the phrase I tend to use is, is when an organization consistently sh- on their, their release engineering staff or their automation staff or their, their engineering support staff. And that can be QA, that can be tech ops, that can be IT ops, it could be DevOps, it can be release engineering. And what I guess I mean by that is when... We're all in those roles to support the business and to support engineering, but when there's sort of a cultural thing about, well, we can just make that team always work the weekend instead of planning better because they can be that sponge to soak up whatever other poor planning or lack of planning is done. Now, I understand there are always going to be cases that Amazon goes down and you have to have people on call to deal with that, and that's fine. But when you're using a team as a sponge... And then you, you know, and I've had this experience where I, I was used as a sponge for six months and it was like evenings and weekends, you, you got to do this, evenings and weekends. And I was told, you know, oh, we'll do, you'll, you'll get comp time. We'll, we'll give you comp time. And then you'd be like, well, I'm going to take this Friday off. This was comp time for these days. And they'd look at you like, what? When did I say I don't, under, I don't understand. What Why is would, comp time? Yeah. Were, well, I think um, one of the things that you can look for is, and I certainly have experienced this as well. When your company looks at IT, whether or not it's development or ops or your release engineers or your support staff or whatever, when you, when your company regards IT as a cost center and not a value add, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, um, that's, you that's, save yourself, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, just don't get, wait for the women out. and children. Just jump overboard and see if you can find a, a lifeboat and and go because they're never going to do anything for you, and there's nothing you can do for them at that point except suffer because. What I've seen happen is that basically what what they'll do is they'll pay for really, 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 really cheap outsourced development, and then they will implement whatever is given to them and expect their full-time staff to uh, support it forever, among other things. So, I mean, there are a lot of good signs that it's time to get out. For real, if you see with, stuff like that. With regard to, to Paul's point, when he was, he was telling the story about, you know, they're, they're having you do like nights and weekends and things, I actually raised this exact point because it, I was in a release engineering role and before every release, I had to wrap everything up. So I had to do, you know, a bunch of like large integrations and then ship a product and put it out. And I, that didn't preclude me from having to be in the office all day. So they would do these sometimes at the end day. So I would work eight, 10 hour day. And then I'd still have to stay another two hours because that was my job. And I kind of pointed out, I was like, well, could we make sure the releases are done, you know, by this time in the day? Because everyone, you know, had that, they want to get their last little fix in. Right. And so I, I was able to somewhat successfully, it didn't always fix it, but I, I started to make a point. I was like, I'm just not going to, I'm going to start leaving at this time if you guys can't get a release in. And at first that was met with some contention, but I, I kind of, made my case. I was like, well, look, I work a 12-hour day every time we do this release, and everyone else works a six-hour day, and then just gets out of the office, because their work's done. They don't, they don't have to care about the release right. once it's shipped to prod. <laughs> and that was kind of, I, I started to make it, and, and I, I yelled loud enough and long enough that eventually we had a more sane release process. Now, I did a lot of other things to make sure that, to, to minimize the time that I had to spend on it. But 
sometimes you have to do you have to keep going and pushing and sometimes it does sometimes it will change like there there are some positive signs but that was one where it was like paul said their comp time what is that you know right um well you know Seth, you 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 bring up a really interesting point because i think accountability is really important Mm -hmm. i mean i I have to say i i had an employer that i left because they claimed to have accountability but they didn't so devs could put whatever they want into production Stay, all hell breaks loose. We're having to scramble to put out a patch release, and there's no there's no accountability for for that type of thing. So I, I think that's something really critical. It's yeah. if you can't if you expect your release engineer to be supra accountable because he is the release engineer, and there's only one of him. There's nobody double checking his his work. That's unfair. That's that's a that's you're you're putting a standard. Unfair, yeah, it's a double standard. You're putting an unfair weight when you have every other you know I'd say a dev team of twenty five people. And they're all code reviewing and they're getting reports from the release engineer, you know, from the automated build systems. And the release engineer has no, I think that was one of the, my biggest, they're like, well, you, you made a mistake on this one integration. And I was like, well, I did also do about 350 integrations that Integrate were- your own <laughs> yeah, why are you doing the integration is the real that's, question. That's a good, that's a very good point, which we can get into at length. But that's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole episode right there. All right, all right. Closing thoughts on uh, red flags or uh, how you say adios. It's kind of funny. Uh, I'm, it's probably better. Listeners can't see the, the chat channel we have where we have some images going on on how you should quit. But, uh, but final thoughts, guys. Yusuf. Yeah, I think the bottom line is, you know, if you dread walking into work every day, get out. You know? I mean, you're very clear. You gotta, yeah. It's, it's uh, you're, you're number one. So, yeah. Sasha, what do you think? You're a lot more valuable than you think you are. And then you're also a lot more valuable than your company would like you to think you are, depending on the size of your company. Mm. One of the first things that I did when I left my first really long job was to get out and discover that the stuff that I knew from, from troubleshooting middleware and, and web deployments for five years made me incredibly valuable and that I was so underpaid and so underappreciated and I had no idea. So don't undervalue yourself. If, if you're not happy, there are people who would love to have you. There always are. So that's very briefly, that's a really interesting point because basically every place I've ever worked, even if the environment wasn't was whatever and I had to leave, I was always surprised at the emails I got after going, what? You were so great. Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, I wish... I wish that information could have been actionable to have solved the actual underlying issues, and sometimes it's not. But uh, I guess that always that always is nice to hear, and it's nice. You're totally right. You need to you need to certainly believe that. EJ, parting thoughts. Yeah, I think if you're not if you're not growing, you're not if you if you can look out in your trajectory and you're not going to land where you want to, it's time to get out. You know, if if the people around you haven't uh, helped facilitate that landing, it's just time to go. You'll find it somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. And Seth? I'm going to flip it around. I'm going to talk about a green flag. Oh. When, you are work- when you are working at a place and they say, no, 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 don't do it by hand. Put it in configuration management. Do it right. Then you, then you know you might be in the right place. Um, <laughs> and somebody says, oh, no, no, I don't want you to half-ass this. Like, I want you to make sure that we do this the right way. And they t- encourage you to take your time. And they encourage you to go out and learn something new. Just so that you can, so that you can be better at your job, that's huge. And that for me is a kind of the opposite of all the the red flags. You they're actually investing in you when they want to send you to conferences, and they're excited to hear what you've learned from conferences. 
that for me is a, I, I feel like, especially being in a lot of situations with red flags, you're kind of, you feel this, you feel this strange sensation where you're like, wait, you, you just told me to do it right? I'm happy about this, but I feel like I should be suspicious. Um, that said, it's a, it's a great feeling. So if you are hearing that, then that's, you know, maybe you should, maybe you should state your job or maybe you should work with them more if you're, if some other problem is preventing you or there may be some other factor. So yeah, that's actually a really great point that there could be red, yellow or red flags, but there, if there's like green flags like that, where it's like, yeah, we know things right now aren't great and we do need you to just ship this release, but here's how we're going to plan so that we don't say this thing, you know, we don't say that the next time that can help offset some of that stuff. I mean, that's, and I guess that's a great way, a great thought to end on. You know, I would say a green flag, if they hired you to do the job that they were advertising it, that they really wanted. And sometimes that means, hey, I, I need to help you do the job of shipping bits better. And here's how I, I want to help you with that. And if they're open to that, that's definitely a green flag. Yeah. Well, great discussion. And uh, I'd love to hear uh, what other people think. If you're uh, listening to this, uh, go ahead and tweet uh, Ship Show Podcast with uh, when what your metrics are for uh, when enough is enough. Uh, and we'll see if there's uh, something we missed. Uh, these sorts of stories are always delicate to talk, talk about, but there's always good stuff in there. So we'll be back in a few moments uh, here on The Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, uh, we're going to be doing a review of the RelEng 2013 workshop, uh, which I recently attended. The RelEng 2013 workshop was part of the 35th International Conference on Software Engineering, which uh, actually, in talking with the organizers, is pronounced ICSE, I-C-S-E, took place uh, here in San Francisco. And it was a one-day workshop uh, with a couple keynotes. What I thought was really interesting about this particular workshop is that, unlike a lot of conferences, the, the conference itself is an academic conference, so there's a lot of presentation of research and papers and things like that. The organizers wanted to do a mix of practitioner talks and academic talks. So the day had names that you'd expect. Mozilla was there, and their director of release engineering gave a keynote. Netflix was there. LinkedIn was there. Their director of tools services, I believe, gave uh, the other keynote. There were, pe- there were people from open source there. Gnome gave a presentation. And there were a couple of Mozilla-related talks. Uh, one of the interesting ones was uh, using Git and Mercurial in the, on the same code base, which is apparently something they support. So yeah, it was, it was an interesting conference in so much as it gave a real different view to practitioners, I think, just to see what uh, academics in the space are working on. And it also, I think, there one of the last panel discussions was talking about that for the academic researchers. They, you know, they asked point blank, "Is this stuff that we're looking at useful to you guys? Like, be helpful to get some direction on this, on like what research we we should be doing." What, what was the uh, what was the venue like? Actually, it was amusing to me. The venue was actually at the same hotel that ChefConf was at, and one of the rooms that it was actually the same exact area of the hotel. And so it was in one of the rooms that one of the chef comp talks was in. Um, so that was kind of funny. It was a little blast from class. If you attended chef comp, it was where they had lunch exactly where chef comp lunch was. So they must, the atrium, they must use that a lot for that sort of thing. Hmm. But yeah, no, on, uh, what I was going to say is that the, on the academic side, uh, they had some really interesting, oh, uh, Google was there. That's the other big one that I forgot. Uh, Google was talking about how they do continuous a release at Google. What was interesting on the academic side, they were talk, you know they had lots of different uh, talks. Somebody did a review of 
a tool they've been working on that was a make replacement that does better uh, dependency detection, which is funny because there were there's a lot of uh, academic research themes that don't ever seem to change. It's like getting your dependencies right is one of them in build systems. One one researcher had a plugin for uh, Eclipse, I think it was, which would do Java dependency detection. So you could actually, if you like, moved your class files into different directories, it would actually do all the updates for you, which seemed pretty cool. Um, so yeah, it was it was an interesting uh, workshop. A lot of looking at the same thing from different angles. Uh, the other kind of major interesting part was it, of it, which you know I certainly resonated with, was the fact that it's release engineering. So a lot of conferences are very DevOps focused, and there was a lot of DevOps discussion uh, at the workshop. But it, but a lot of it were release engineers that have been doing release engineering for 15 years, and so you know their perspective on things is a little different angle than a lot of the DevOps stuff. So did, um, they, did they actually talk about how release engineering fits in with kind of the new DevOps world, or does anybody give any? Yeah, um, was so, yeah they did. So the, one of the keynotes, like I said, was from the director of release engineering at Mozilla. So his talk was focused a lot on the browser and how they ship the browser, uh, which again is my background, uh, native kind of quote unquote box software. But the the talk from LinkedIn, his talk was basically a culture talk, and LinkedIn doesn't really ship box software, so it was very much a DevOps culture talk, and that was actually pretty fascinating. They talked about kind of what they did before and what branching strategy they used and that kind of stuff and and how they moved actually to a trunk only model now and a, a lot of the cultural shifts that had to take place for them to sort of succeed and I, I thought that was really interesting that actually brings up a really good point Yusuf one bit of feedback that I would give that I it was it was kind of weird for me we were talking with one of the academic presenters was saying it's very interesting to hear the industry speakers talk about their failures because that's not something you typically talk about in academia or you kind of want to hide your weaknesses. And I will say that I think looking at the other tech conferences, I mean, and, and Sasha, maybe you can color this a little bit, but I mean, looking at ChefConf and Velocity and DevOps days, a lot of those talks actually are, here's how I screwed up and I don't want you to screw up. So. Like, I mean, your talk uh, at ChefConf was a, a lot about that. Yeah, it's true. You'll find a lot of that at Surge, too, and there, I'm pretty sure the Rikons as well, because that's distributed. Right. So, so like, that, you'll, you'll hear a lot of that in uh, scaled systems talks, because we're always messing something up. Right. So, and learning from it, right? But we're always right. messing something up. Right, right, right. And so what I thought was very interesting is that even, even though the discussions here, I mean, it, it was funny that pra some of the practitioner talks were which you'd expect in a conference like that, where they were very frank about sort of the mistakes. But then there was sort of this kind of weird, like that didn't always mesh very well because there was sort of this expectation of like you can't show weaknesses. And and that's, somebody said that. So I, I, that, like I sensed something was a little weird like that, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And I guess that was it. And that's the one thing that I would say that, that the workshop for future versions of it, like it seems like a lot of conferences in this space are going down that road of, here I did a bunch of, you know, I don't know how it would apply exactly to research, but like maybe I did a bunch of research and I found out this was totally wrong, but it led to these new questions or something like, I don't know how that would apply. I'm not a researcher. Oh, well, there's all kinds of ways that that could apply. I mean, because there's all kinds of stories about researchers who let their own assumptions color their, their data analysis and things like that or ways that you can get data that is flawed collections and all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, I'm sure yeah. that I've actually even heard stuff about that. 
Yeah, I think that that would be something interesting to see at the next workshop that they do where it seems like the industry as a whole, I mean, you know, you look at AWS, you look at Etsy, you look at all these places that are very uh, GitHub, very public about their postmortems. I, I think that would be useful and sort of get, I, I know that can be hard, but getting over that hump of we can never show we were ever wrong uh, would actually be more useful for future talks. And, That's how they make peer-reviewed journals as well, yeah. right? I mean... Well, I, you know, again, th that was something that one of, one of the researchers said. And, and again, I'm not a researcher, so I'm, I don't mean to harp on them. I don't, that's not my life. So, I, I mean, maybe there, I, there are other requirements. I still have a couple friends who are professors, and they talk, you know, the whole tenure thing and how that system works. So, I mean, I understand there's, like, different requirements. But put it this way, that kind of honesty at conferences I think it's safe to say we sort of started to come to expect that kind of blatant, frank discussion. And that's hard to have if you can never talk about mistakes you ever made or you have to control the story that you're telling so that everything looks roses when in reality a lot of times it's yeah. not. And the interesting thing is why it's not and how you made it become better. So, yeah. But yeah, especially if, if you're background is release engineering, I definitely suggest checking it out next year. They're talking actually, it's funny, the next conference is in India, and it was funny, they were like, uh, who wants to go to Mumbai? And only a few people raised their hand because that's a long flight. So then they were talking about, well, do, should we hold it here? So there may actually be another release engineering workshop that's outside of the conference. It's, it'll talk of that, so it'll be interesting to follow that development, especially if you are one of the release engineers that listens to the show and that's your background, you should definitely check it out for uh, next year. So, on that note, we'll point listeners to the events calendar, which we try to keep updated. And of course, we'll add the, the new Relinge workshop when it comes up for 2014. So you can check that out at uh, theshipshow.com slash events. You could also email us with any uh, news that you have or topics to discuss, crew at theshipshow.com. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Ship Show Podcast. So, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. In Minneapolis, this is Sasha, Sanyo. And we'll see you all in a couple of weeks.